good night everyone so welcome to this special friday night edition of te tarik with walid episode 30 is the final episode of season 3 i hope not to do any more episodes for the year and hopefully we'll resume in in january well hopefully unless of course a politician calls me up and say i really want hey walid i really want to do an episode with you in november or december then by all means i'm always happy to 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 have anybody on yeah but uh if that doesn't happen this is the season finale and so welcome and we are going to have a and i know i always say this but as i said i mean it every time and uh every time a person invites uh accepts my invite uh my invitation that person becomes special to me already Right but this time round this person is a familiar household name at least over the past couple of years this person has become a household name and that's associate professor James Lim and we have a range of issues to talk about so if you guys want to participate feel free to type in your comments and uh, I'll be happy to take some questions so the target is not more than 1 hour hopefully hopefully and then we'll see uh how it goes and i think this is the best attendance i have had in quite a while uh so i wonder why i wonder why but in any case so uh before we begin i don't think uh dr lim is here yet before we begin i just wanted to say that today i had the pleasure of uh having te tari gele and this is Uh, something that I have advertised on my on my Insta story, you guys can check that out. And uh, that I do get some requests, not a lot. I do get some requests about, oh, can you feature this in in your episode? I usually turn it down because I mean I'm I don't make any money from this. But this time round, because Nasuha is uh, the 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 founder of Tetarik Gili. Uh, hi Chiun. Uh, Nasuha is somebody who has been watching this uh, this show since the first episode. I remember she was commenting during Professor Yakko Ibrahim's uh, episode. So I thought, okay, I should return the favor, not influencer. And there was no there was no agreement to get it. So I don't know what Nasuha is talking about. Hi, hi, Dr. Lim. How are you? Just call me James. Oh, hi, hi, James. How are you? All right. <laughs> Okay okay doing? so thank you thank you uh thank you for doing this i am very uh, excited as you can see there are about 200 people uh watching Wonderful. this it's yeah it's, hi to everyone uh, thanks for spending your friday evening with us oh i think the 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 pleasure is ours so uh so uh, let's start let's get oh there are 300 already i think a lot of your followers are watching this as well so let's uh let's get to it uh mass mandates right so that's the first one because that that was that was your con- your big contribution in the past couple of weeks you have had a few contributions uh well, i don't know about past, contribution past but that was <laughs> that was the most recent controversy <laughs> yeah controversy contribution you know synonyms okay so uh mass mandate so why why do you think we should relax this and why this uh not the others or are you saying we should relax mm. everything as well when it comes to the covid restriction um so i think a little bit of context is useful here the when i have posted about this uh, it was in the aftermath of 
a parliamentary question that I filed, but actually that parliamentary question was filed at the end of July. So at the end of July, if you recall, uh, we were living in a slightly different COVID world compared to where we live in today. And at that time, it seemed like we were in the process of thinking about uh, broader relaxation mechanisms. So, um, of course, as you probably know, we when we do social media, we have a stock of posts and we don't necessarily post everything immediately after we, we draft them. So I kept it. And, you know, when I came back from the US, it seemed like uh, it was a reasonable thing to revive this thought about uh, masking or not, um, especially since when I was in the US, I had experienced a, a very different approach. And that was really what prompted me to ask the question, if you look in the US, uh, the behavior is completely different from how it is here. And while there are pluses and minuses, I think contrasting the two is actually useful. And in particular, what happens is in the US is you see people exiting a building and then they rip off their masks. So uh, in contrast, I think uh, you and I have both experienced the complete opposite here. Someone enters uh, a building and the first thing they do is they rip off their mask because they've had the mask on when they're outdoors. And I actually think that's the wrong way around. Um, if you think about how it's like, uh, in terms of transmissibility, it's far more likely that we end up transmitting indoors as opposed to outdoors. So the entire purpose of that post was uh, to kind of stimulate thinking about, well, are we doing things the wrong way, for one? And secondly, to think about whether uh, we should think more seriously about various relaxation mechanisms if we are truly going to take this entire... Uh, living with COVID endemic situation a little more seriously. Okay, why why the the mask mandate though? Because according to the Straits Times survey, right, for whatever it's worth, uh, I'm sure there are methodological issues or whatever it is. But for what, whatever it's worth, uh, that is something that Singaporeans are quite comfortable with. And even just anecdotally, again for whatever it's worth, I've heard people who are saying even after the mandate is over they still intend to wear masks, mm -hmm. right? So the thing that it seems to me, and uh, the State, Straits Times survey corroborates this, that Singaporeans are uncomfortable with is the family gathering, right? The size of the gatherings at home, right? So why not uh, go after that as part, as a first step of normalizing? Why, why so, the mask? Yeah. So because ultimately, if you look at the science, uh, it is indoor transmission that is the most transmissible. So it, I'm sure if you ask most Singaporeans now, they're very happy with, uh, for instance, or not happy, but they're comfortable with uh, unmasking in the gym. Uh, and honestly, if you think about the risks that are associated with unmasking in the gym versus the risks of unmasking outdoors, I would suggest that actually the former is far, far more risky behavior than the latter. And yet we have demonstrated a certain comfort level because we think, oh, you know, uh, what we want is you, when someone's working out, you want to be unencumbered. Uh, at the moment, I think Singaporeans are far more comfortable with unmasking in a more risky situation. And that's what I was trying to prompt people to think about in, in, my, in my post. Uh, are we making 
decisions on the basis of the latest science or are we making it on the basis of uh, what the status quo is and 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 that's what prompted that post right so you think we are ready for that as a society we are ready to move to that because even now you see people actually calling for more lockdowns and some people i think i think it's pretty much split right there are people calling for tighter yeah. restrictions yeah So in fact um if you look at the survey you'll see that it's about a minority about 25% that wants things to be tighter 25% right. that want things uh to be more relaxed and of course 50% that are entirely comfortable which is right. exactly why we're in this goldilocks situation <laughs> where we have where we are in between both worlds right, right. so um now that being said the purpose of again once again the, the purpose of this post was more to get people to think about if we were to move to greater relaxation what are the things that we should be thinking about should we be thinking more about relaxing outdoor masking as opposed to our current uh, stipulations for indoor masking and that's just one of them there could be lots of other things that we can think about uh, in terms of moving toward a more endemic world one of them for instance i think is we should focus less on case loads Uh, and more on just those that are either uh, significantly ill needing hospitalization or those that are in icu we should be ego eye focused on both of those metrics and really let the case loads fall as they may because the truth is if we are going to live with um covid as if it were pneumonia or with flu i mean when was the last time you monitored how many flu cases there were in singapore mm. you don't because you know that there are people who are going to get flu right uh, in, and and you you just live with with that right. knowledge that there is a risk of getting sick in that way um but you don't hyper focus on it i think it will be healthy for us as a society and and i appreciate it is difficult it's difficult because we lived with a zero covid policy for a very long time right so we we had gotten very very comfortable with zero covid and right. so now we have to kind of readjust and realign our our kind of mental models which the government is challenge. doing right the government is doing now right trying to focus less on the case loads and uh, more on so, the critical cases so i think they are the thing is that there was a transition period where more public education could have been uh pushed you know before you know when we were in this period of um phase 2 ha and phase 3 ha and so on that was the time when cases were coming down that was a time when we would it was appropriate instead of focusing on the cases coming down to say okay they are coming down what we're going to do is we want singaporeans to focus less on cases let's put it somewhere i i am all for transparency so it should be posted somewhere on the MOH website but let's not report the number of cases in the newspapers every day because that's generally not something we need to know what we need to know is are our hospital beds uh, sufficient is our icu ward are our icu wards being overwhelmed those are the critical ones and as long as those are okay then we are living with covid as as what the government wants us to do Right. So perhaps just just final one on this because there are a few comments on on unvaccinated elderly and so on. So would living with covid mean accepting that there will be deaths and that's just part of it and 
because either way it's them if you do them if you don't and we just choose to accept the option that there'll be more deaths and we live with covid but everything else goes back to normal so what i'll say is that nobody wants any death and not least uh, myself i live with my mother who is 70 years old so um saying that we will just accept deaths is of course uh, not just callous but uh, also um requires you to not think about alternatives but that said it's important to understand that um there is both a a sin of omission versus a sin of commission right so the sin of commission is that you allow these deaths or you or you impose policies that end up uh becoming realized as, as deaths but at the same time there's also the possibility that if you continue to uh have stringent restrictions and there are people who are not able to make a living as a result uh and or who are undergoing severe mental illnesses because they are being cooped up uh without social contact those are costs too and yeah. Yeah. so we don't count these right as yeah. the costs of 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 shutting down so my point is again i'm not saying that we should ignore deaths uh and every death is not worthwhile but uh, it's important to understand the trade-offs that we are making when we say we want to have uh zero deaths right and recessions kill also right in the long run even in the short run suicides last year there was a there was a high number of suicides as well okay so so let's leave it at that but we we agree basically either way there are difficult choices to be made right all right okay so let's go to the hot button issue today well it's hot button i guess in certain circles right so fika right uh so what has just been debated in parliament for over 10 hours so now that uh, the government has put up their position you know time flies and... when you're having fun 10 hours <laughs> or 10 hours between friends <laughs> yeah. yeah so uh you now that they have put up their position do you feel assured uh, especially uh, what uh, minshan said but mos faisal also said and he gave a few examples right like a foreign journalist criticizing i may be paraphrasing criticizing the pap that's not part of fika an academic who who's working who's critical of the pap not part of fika and my concern initially and as a fellow academic i guess you can uh, you can uh, empathize as well many of my fellow academics were our fellow academics were were concerned as well like simple things like co-authoring with a foreign scholar would that be on singapore politics would that be part of fika it seems that they have clarified that none of this would be covered under fika so are you now assured or what are your concerns still so what i'll say is this um there are part if you look at the bill itself you have the bill you have the explanatory notes that accompany the bill that is Uh, doesn't have the same weight as well it's actually it's not a bill it's now a law so you have the law you have the explanatory notes that accompany the law which uh, don't have the same weight as uh, the actual codified law but nevertheless have some explanatory power and some interpretive power and then you have the policy assurances that come from MHA and so on and so forth for me the weakest part is the third leg right uh, a lot of these assurances have actually come from policy statements that could change if you have uh, another government or you have another minister that has a different view on how policy should be done they are not bound by the previous policy statements that's why we were pushing so hard 
to ensure the qualification of some of the things that we were uh, provided reassurance for, reassurances for uh, via policy by MHA, but uh, which were not qualified. Now, take a step closer to the letter of the law, which is the explanatory notes. There they have some, uh, not as reassuring, but modestly more reassuring language where uh, it says that it explicitly wants to rule out instances where uh, someone inadvertently co collaborates with, uh, with another, with a foreign principal, but it's unintentional, it's just coincidental. Mm. So that has weight. Right. Um, and, and that does rule out some of the most um, potentially unjust outcomes. But right. nevertheless, nothing is as solid as if it's officially codified in the letter of the law, which is why one of the amendments that uh, the party has pushed under my name is to include explicit language that states that uh, basically what the MH, uh, MHA stated in its public statements um, into the law proper so that in future, in uh, specific cases where this is used in a context where it was not meant to be used, um, there's the possibility of pulling out uh, the fact that, well, look, this subclause says that this was not uh, the intent of this kind of um, legal language. Right. So, uh, but wouldn't you say the the policy assurances are of different kinds as well? So if it's said in Parliament during the debate, it has a bit more weight than a Facebook post, for instance, right? So yeah. what was said in Parliament, do you think that at least uh, gives you some assurances? Right. So that's why we sought to make sure that these were said in Parliament. So right, that, uh, right. The, the, once again, Hans Art. Uh, right. would have a certain uh, weight of evidence uh, in in the judiciary uh, right. that is weaker than the explanatory uh, notes to the to the law but nevertheless better than um, a facebook post or uh, a, a mha statement so we right. did want that component in there um, but you know the other comp the other part that was still missing and never ended up becoming law was um, the assurance of an actual judiciary to to look look at this, and and recent developments have shown uh, that the the judiciary is both able to exercise a certain degree of independence as well as overturn uh, at or at least partially overturn uh, a a ruling by originally by the ministry. So uh, I think that underscores why we felt it was really important to not just have a tribunal, which of course is better than not having. Uh, any kind of secondary check and balance at all, but we wanted something that was uh, potentially richer in the form of a ju judiciary. And we felt that uh, the counter argument, which was, well, there was the possibility of a leak, uh, was uh, insufficient, at least. Uh, we felt that there were mechanisms, uh, hurting rule, my, my Sinkan colleague explicitly said, to have it in camera. So it could be uh, confidential, just that it would nevertheless be an official judiciary and as far as leaks go well look you know of course a smaller number of people uh, is less likely to leak but the size of a judiciary honestly uh, a court proceeding held in camera isn't that much larger than uh, a tribunal so mm. we thought that that was a better balance right so i i personally agree with you and uh, i think we are ideologically aligned on this, right? However, would you agree that this issue, right, is not really 
controversial for many Singaporeans. Fika is not really the concern of many Singaporeans other than a small group of activists, academics and people who are more liberal, quote-unquote. Uh, whereas you do not see the same kind of pushback against Fika uh, when it comes to COVID policies, for instance, or even the presidential reserve presidency. You saw that a lot of people were really unhappy about that. But when it comes to POFMA and Fika, people do not really... No, I wouldn't say they don't really care, but they think that this is not something that I will be personally affected, I would be personally affected by, and therefore I do not really put a lot of weight on this. So there is some degree to which that's true, uh, that it certainly it doesn't directly uh, affect, uh, FICA especially, does not directly affect the average man or woman on the street, right? It's, uh, the, the law itself is meant to be apply only to people that have been classified as politically sensitive persons. Mm. And um, we have uh, sought to expand that, that coverage in part because we feel that there was both the judiciary, uh, excuse me, the bureaucracy, as well as uh, political entities that were potentially susceptible to influence. But nevertheless, uh, it is a small group of people, but uh, this is where we think that it matters more to um, the average person, and that is the effect that it has on our willingness to engage in free-spirited political discussion and political debate. Um, to be quite honest, I am, I know it sounds a bit ironic, but I'm not big into political debates. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Uh, I, I actually really like to talk about policy. Uh, inevitably, a lot of this gets rolled into a political. Yeah, debate. but can can you differentiate policy and politics? I mean, policy is the outcome of politics, right? Well, I would like to, and here's the reason why. Uh, because for me, um, if you always hinge a given policy to a political party, then you become stuck on um, in a camp, if you will. Uh, and at some point, you stop thinking about whether the policy actually makes sense. And you just say, well, I'll let the party or whatever is my affiliation, political affiliation, do the thinking for me. And that's very intellectually lazy. I would much rather say, no, look, let's, uh, let's divorce policy as much as we can from parties. Of course, in the end, a given policy may become championed by one party or another. But let's not have this array of policies that we immediately associate with a party because then we run the risk of uh, supporting policies that don't make sense just because they happen to have been right. adopted by a particular political right. party. Right. So one example um, is uh, just how we... Well, let's talk about masking again. I hate to go back to this, but... <laughs> it's uh, okay. Yeah. I think there's quite a lot of evidence that masking in general, and especially indoors, um, is an important mechanism to prevent the transmission of COVID. I'm a strong believer in masking in general, uh, especially indoors. So, but in the US, for instance, it has become associated with the, the policy right. on masking has become associated with the party. Right, and, and the culture war, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and not yeah. masking has been associated with another party. Right, right. And that's when I think uh, it's destructive. When we want to have 
rational policy debates, we should base it on the policies as much as possible so that we can be sure and reassure ourselves that we aren't blindly supporting a policy just because it happens to be something that our party supports. And right. I, I would encourage every Singaporean to think this way, which is why I very much always welcome critique of uh, any kind of policy that I put forward. Because really, the truth is, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I have a view. I try as much as possible uh, to be informed about my views and to be responsible about how I share these views. Uh, but nothing makes me happier than to have someone engage and question um, the premise of what I'm sharing and and if necessary, uh, with additional data and information, I change my mind. Okay. Okay, thank you so much. And I think uh, just just uh, to end this part on Fika, my, my personal view is I think most, from my own observations, most people are actually okay with Fika or comfortable with it, uh, just as they were with POFMA. Um, however, if it is used if people perceive it to be used in a political way, quote-unquote, uh, then uh, the legitimacy for the policy would uh, would decrease substantially or for the law would uh, decrease substantially. So how the government... Yes, but that's, that, that's actually a difference, right? So you said the legitimacy of uh, the policy would diminish. That's probably true. If it's ever abused, uh, people would lash out against it. But it has become law. So yes, yes, even, exactly. Even exactly, you're right. It's no longer legitimate right. in the eyes of people. Uh, it's not that easy to overturn the law. Sure, it is not that easy, but there would be more repercussions for, for the ruling party, right? At the ballot box or whatever it is. And I can think of uh, Professor Tambaya when when uh, Pofma was invoked against him during the elections. I remember that a, a lot of people were unhappy, even people who were not uh, unhappy when Pofma was passed. Right, so, so I guess uh, that's the distinction that we made. So, so thank you so much. And uh, let's move on. And if I were ideologically aligned to you in the previous question, perhaps in the next question, we would have some disagreement and the spirit of uh, whatever you just said, critiquing and challenging, right? So let's talk about the GRCs, right? So on this, uh, I am more aligned to the PAP's policy, right? Because I understand... Uh, the Workers' Party doesn't want the GRCs to exist, right? As in, you would want a return to the SMCs, right? But as you, you, we have seen as a society from the rise in racist incidents, right? Or, uh, no, the rise in visibility of racist incidents. Uh, do you think it is wise for us to uh, revert to SMCs when it is clear that there is still a lot of racism, or at least there's some racism and there's some ra racial tensions, uh, some xenophobia, whatever it is mixed with racism, uh, and therefore there wouldn't be a safeguard against racial voting or even racist voting if we abandon the GRCs. Yeah. So here I'll go back um, to the debate that occurred in Parliament in, in a slightly different context, which was about uh, the ethnic integration policy for HDB flats. And uh, there, Pritam's uh, response to that uh, was actually, he accepts that we aren't there yet. We aren't in a post-racial -race society. Uh, and the incidences of racism continue to exist. But um, his, and in fact, our position on the ethnic integration policy is that that is something that we want to work eventually to. 
nobody imagines uh, dismantling the ethnic integration policy tomorrow with no replacement for it because we know that ethnic enclaves uh, are a social scientific reality. And, and, you know, there's quite a lot of empirical evidence that favors the formation, even with very, very mild uh, conditions of, of ethnic uh, enclaves. So the problem is there, there's no doubt. Um, now, why the Workers' Party, with regard to the ethnic in integration policy, has an issue uh, is because it now makes one group, uh, typically minorities, and between the minorities, typically Malays, bear the cost of uh, what we want society to have, which is a more integrated uh, society, ethnically speaking. Uh, so by the same token, this is how I think about uh, the GRC system as well. Uh, it is true that we haven't arrived at a post-ethnic uh, or post a racial society where we can say let's do away with the GRC altogether, but we also recognize that the GRC has um, non-trivial costs in terms of uh, needing to gather a, a certain number of high-caliber candidates in order to have uh, a successful run, uh, competitive run in in the in the GRC, uh, and so here. Maybe what we need to ask ourselves is, 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 are there transition policies to help us get to a point where we can all be represented by uh, SMCs? And just like how it is for the ethnic integration policy, we have some ideas for potential tweaks to the system uh, in the interim to help us get to a post-EIP world. Uh, I, we would have certain arguments for how the GRC system can be um, made less pernicious in this operation, well, not least uh, by reducing the very, very largest GRCs, right? Uh, to make them something like a two or three person GRC. If you really require representation, have a two or three person GRC, and some of these uh, would require a minority representation. So there you ensure that the slate that you put forward for the GRC is more likely to be competitive. Uh, because it's not as di difficult for opposition parties or parties without the depth of resources to be able to fill uh, these positions. Right. So, um, so I definitely agree with you. I think I've been on about two-person GRCs uh, for the longest time. Uh, so I just wanted to push you a little. What does post-ethnic society, society mean means to you? What, what does post-racial mean to you? Well, Maybe I should start by saying what it shouldn't mean. So, um, so and, and a little bit of context is useful here. I, of course, I grew up as a member as a member of uh, the visibly ethnic majority. I say visible oh. because I'm. Oh, I couldn't tell. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I say that because I'm. I'm Peranakan, so I'm, uh, in a sense, uh, ethnically mixed to begin with. Um, but that being said, I lived as an ethnic minority when I was in the West, in various Western countries. Uh, so I've become very, very sensitive to mm. the fact that uh, if you live in a, as an ethnic minority, the, um, the fact that there aren't loud or vociferous complaints about your treatment uh, as an ethnic minority doesn't mean that all is fine and dandy. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing I'll point out, which is that 
just because we haven't heard loud, loud agitations, except perhaps by, by some of the most vocal uh, ones, especially online. It doesn't mean that the average minority in this country, whether Malay or Indian or Eurasian, uh, does not feel somehow uh, the pressures of being a minority. Now, some of that is normal. You know, if you're a minority, it is, there's nothing wrong per se with being a minority as long as that minority status isn't accompanied by um, specific uh, expectations or specific costs. And that's why I mentioned earlier on, you know, Malays, for instance, shouldn't be the ones that bear the overwhelming burden of our uh, positive um, ethnic integration, the, the positive elements of our ethnic integration policy. So to answer your question now, how, how do we eventually get there? Um, I would say that these are the kind of things that we get there when there's open dialogue, open conversation about uh, what minorities in particular continue to feel in our society. Uh, so rather than the sweeping of issues under the carpet and pretending like they don't exist, we need to talk about it. Uh, we need to ensure that there is um, that, 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 that those that talk about it are not do not get into trouble. They feel comfortable sharing about their minority experiences and so on and so forth. Um, and eventually, much as I hate to say it, I, I think it does happen generation by generation. Um, hopefully the generation isn't like 40 years and more like 10 years. <laughs> That's um, a biblical generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and the reason why I say this is because um, I think you see this, right, uh, in terms of mindsets with regard to various things. Um, some of it may be gender roles in, in society or gender identities in society. And, you know, my mother, for instance, she, she will, I think, for the rest of her life, bless her soul, um, not be able to let go of certain mindsets that she has about sure, gender roles sure. and gender identities. Sure. But by our generation, we have become much more comfortable with saying it's fine for a woman to work for instance. Um, and, and likewise, for the next generation, you can imagine uh, ethnicity being potentially less of an inherent, I wouldn't say it's not a distinction, it will always be a distinction, but less of an inherent um, bugbear than what uh, it would be if we were not able to talk about it, if we were not able to freely uh, recognize that there are these barriers that still have to be overcome right so what what i would say is i'm not even i'm not sure whether the post uh, racial society should be a a virtue to be pursued or an ideal in the first place because you know as somebody who you know even without the without people knowing what the race on my ic is since since a young age people have always you know reminded me that i'm i'm indian right uh, and if if that happens and we do not have safeguards in society i mean that that does worry me uh, as a minority right so i i am definitely for open dialogue but i think uh, having things like the grc and the eip even though they are they come with certain costs i i think ultimately again just like earlier right 
there is no perfection this side of heaven, right? So you will always have trade-offs mm -hmm. for for the various uh, policies. Yeah, but thank you for that. That was uh, that was a really useful. I think you you discuss the philosophy and then get right to the policy as well. So that was a good discussion. So let's get a bit personal, if if we may. Sure. <laughs> so. There, I'm sure you've you've seen these criticisms. You've heard Let me this just yourself. check that my wife is around. So yes, okay, there you go. <laughs> okay, so I'm sure you heard these criticisms and and you've you've read them before that people say you're an elitist, and I myself was during the debate on minimum wage. I was a bit uncomfortable when uh, when you mentioned the folksy wisdom command and it appeared to be a I understand where you're coming even though I, I do agree I'm for the minimum wage but when you mentioned it I was I myself was a bit uncomfortable about whether this was too uh, elitist or you know too condescending and people have said that about you in, in other areas of course a lot of these are uh, online trolls and so on but I've also heard well-meaning people just asking, you know, uh, I'm not sure about Jameis's uh, demeanor, for instance, right? So how, how would you respond to these types of criticisms? Well, um, with regard to the specific incident of uh, using folksy wisdom, uh, to be quite honest, that was, that was directed uh, in particular at union leaders, which uh, themselves are one could argue elite. So right. I think right, right. Uh, I think one has to be very careful in pretending right. like I was referring to uh, the regular man on the street. Don't forget, we are ultimately the workers' party. And um, in fact, we pride ourselves on connecting with uh, the average worker and the mindset and the thinking of the average worker as opposed to the mindset and thinking of union leaders which, uh, at least in, in the Singapore context, uh, have not always been, um, we might say, have not always been fully aligned necessarily uh, with uh, the mindset of the average worker, at least based on our conversations with uh, non-union leaders, and the average worker. So, so that's the first point I should point out, which is that uh, I was referring to union sure. leaders, which sure, yeah. aren't exactly uh, the proletariat, if you will. <laughs> um, and for me, I think that I think that anyone that knows me uh, will will recognize that uh, I really don't draw these kind of distinctions between people and um, I know that this sounds unconvincing because I'm just uh, stating it, but let me let me put it in in practical terms. Uh, if I was so what after I graduated from A levels, um, I had an opportunity to continue on in education in uh, in a number of paths. One of them was to I had a place in NUS. So after I finished military uh, NS, I could have gone on to NUS uh, to do economics there. Uh, I had an offer from uh, UCL. So this is a university in, in London. London. Um, or I could have gone on to where what I eventually chose, which was the University of Southern Queensland. Uh, it's 
it's what sometimes people call a directional university when the name of the university has a compass direction to it. That's, <laughs> so it's Southern Queensland. <laughs> so it's a directional university, mm-hmm. um, which, if you will, is, is a neighborhood university. And uh, the, the thinking in my mind wasn't actually, well, if I go to this school, I would deviate from this elite uh, path. It was more, well, what made the most rational sense at the time. And it was the fact that when I was in the army, I had uh, already started taking distance education classes with this university, such that by the time I ORD, I had about um, a year and a half left with a degree. So I could huntakaki and start off again um, in NUS or UCL, uh, blow another ton of money, or I could just finish it off uh, and not worry about the elitism of university that I went to. Um, the same happened for the PhD. I uh, had, after I finished my master's, which was in the UK, I had the option of staying in the UK uh, to do a PhD. I could have done it, a PhD in Warwick um, or mm-hmm. Nottingham, and I had another um, MPhil offer, uh, which would w- not be the PhD, but it will be a stepping stone toward the PhD uh, from Oxford. And I could have gone those routes, but I really wanted to go to the US. And um, I chose to go to another non-brand name university. So uh, economists have this term, it's called review preferences. It's basically a $50 word for you put your money where your mouth is, right? And at least in this case, I have I think demonstrated right. that um, I don't need that brand identity, the elite identity uh, to define myself. And so if I have not decided to have that define myself, hopefully people don't think that uh, it is something that defines me. Right. Okay. So the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? Yes, and, that's another way to put it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I mean there are a lot of I know tongue in cheek comments uh on raffles and ACS, but that's a debate for another day. We only have thirteen more minutes, so I don't Well the don't only know. thing I'll say yeah. the, okay, the only on. thing I'll say is uh about that is that to be quite honest, uh, having been in that rivalry for a very long time, uh I actually am not offended by someone from the other school making a statement like that in jest. I I, I don't take it seriously for me. Uh, What was, I think, and and ultimately I think what bothered more people with that statement wasn't the lousy school bit. I think most of us take it in our stride. Uh, It was that uh, in spite of all the claims that schools don't matter, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, in their review preferences, they, in their quiet moments, they, uh, they demonstrated an elitist mindset. Right. So for, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I, I was going to say, I think I saw more unhappiness over that statement than over FICA, for instance, in general society. Yeah. So not, not in uh, select groups. I, maybe that tells us. So I remember... Uh, Said Sadiq, he was telling me, uh, you know, Malaysians uh, tolerate arrogance uh, less than corruption. Uh, 
so <laughs> I mean, there's something to be said about that, right? When when people in power display that that level of arrogance, or they are, they seem to, uh, they are perceived to be displaying that. All right. So we only have about ten minutes, ten to twelve minutes, right? Because Jamus has to go on walkabouts tomorrow, right? Uh, tomorrow morning, Saturday morning. Every yeah. Saturday morning, we don't interact as much uh, these days with people because uh, we are trying to keep our interactions down. Right. But yeah, uh, every Saturday morning, we do our walkabouts. So this is door-to-door uh, -door or uh, is it at the No, no, food, no. So the house center, visits, right. we have suspended. Uh, right. Likewise, we, we have suspended our coffee shop visits. But right. uh, we walk around the estate to make sure that uh, you know, municipal things are running and uh, standards are being kept up. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. So what is a realistic target for WP in the next general election? Is it enough to say that you're a check and balance, check and balance? For how long are you going to be a check and balance, right? So are you here today going to make a bold statement and say, next, <laughs> next election, we want to penetrate the two-thirds majority. We want to get at least one-thirds. Uh, one so third so the, first, the first thing I'll say is uh, we need to obviously hold... Uh, Sengkang, which is my responsibility with that of my other three MP colleagues. So that's our, among the four of us, that is the thing that we are focused on uh, primarily. Um, and, you know, that's, that's our responsibility. We, but, but separate from winning, uh, the reason why winning would be important because it would mean that we have been doing a good job uh, in our respective divisions in Sengkang and thereby rewarding the voters that put their faith in us. Um, so we want to do that, our responsibility to our voters uh, in Sengkang that put us there. So that's, that I will say. I think it's no secret that the Workers' Party has a medium-term goal of a third, uh, accomplishing a third in Parliament. A third is a significant number of seats. It I is. Mean, so have, so is that medium-term in the next five years or...? Well, if uh, we will see, what I'll say is this, uh, every, every seat that we put um, candidates in for, we do the best we can, and we're in it to win it, right? Uh, but at the same time, we know that we're up against um, incumbents that are no pushovers, and we recognize that, and we put up the best fight we can. And if in various constituencies that we compete in, the voters think that uh, we represent a good alternative voice, then we will be able to get closer to that one-third majority. Honestly, if you ask me, if we get to that one-third majority um, in the next election, then we would be completely ecstatic. Um, if not, it will still continue to be our medium-term goal. That's what we're working towards. Uh, not least because we think that uh, it would deny the kind of um, I, w I don't want to use the word flippant, but uh, less considered exercises of um, supermajority that came from what we just saw with FICA, where a, a bill that uh, has wide-ranging implications was advanced and passed in a matter of um, three, four weeks and, you know, notwithstanding what uh, Minister Shanmugam said about how there had been a two or three year process of 
cons public consultation, sure, about the general principles, but about the bill in particular, we saw that a month ago. Mm. All right. So, um, so that's a yes, I suppose. The answer to the question. <laughs> It I'm looking is. for a headline, you know, tomorrow. So, Jamer says we can win one. <laughs> so, I guess I'm not getting that. Yeah, sorry. It is yeah. an assurance that we will do the very best we can. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, that's what politics is, right? You do the best you can, but you aren't... It's not like in a sporting match where you're either going to achieve a personal best. It's not even a sporting match where you will be better than your opponent per se in how you do. It is a sporting match where you don't just have to be better than your opponent, but people have to believe that you are right, better than your right, opponent right, right. And, and vote you in. So right. it's, it's the degrees of separation are so far that I think uh, it would be uh, very presumptuous for us to assume right. that uh, we will win a fixed number of seats. Right. So that, there's an interesting comment by Ashraf as well. Uh, first of all, he says, WP is doing well as an alternative voice and he says please don't dilute the quality of WP MPs and I guess that's quite uh, important right because if you are too focused on the numbers then you may you may start thinking that okay let's just feel whoever it is right but yes. so far WP has been very considered in in fact I would say in many ways too considered and people have been telling me oh it's harder to get interviews with WP uh, members uh, MPs, then even PAP MPs, right? Uh, so the well, yeah. here, here's yeah. a, here, so here's a public call. Uh, <laughs> one of the biggest challenges we face, of course, is uh, high quality candidates willing to step forward and um, put their hat in the ring and say that I'm willing to uh, take the risks as they come, enter the political arena, and serve the country that way, and serve the country in a way where. You, it's not a tournament that you know you're going to win because if we, if we achieve our medium-term goal, we will still not be in government. We will still right. be uh, just enough of a minority that we can deny uh, you know, constitutional changes willy-nilly and so on, but we will still be a minority. So you won't have that kind of a possibility of a carrot that dangles that you will one day become prime minister. Right. Yeah, but what we can guarantee is that you will um, help advance what we believe to be an important cause for uh, ensuring that we have a democracy and a society that better reflects the diversity of views that we need to succeed as a 21st century uh, advanced modern political economy. Right. Thank you for that. So, uh, so uh, just now you said, so this is a final substantive question. Okay. So you said that ultimately you are the Workers' Party, right? Do you think that is still true or is there a movement uh, towards becoming more woke or capturing the more hmm. politically liberal, right? Because the workers, uh, the workers, the base, right, is perhaps economically left, but it's not politically or culturally left, right? Uh, so maybe the distinction between some, somebody like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, for instance, right? So is, is the Workers' Party moving more and more towards the 
more socio-politically left rather than the economically left? We move where we think uh, we best represent the left of center in in the voting base that we are trying to appeal to. Um, and that is still very much hewing very close to the center, uh, just somewhat to the left. We are, you know, we like to think of ourselves as the fact that PAP is uh, WP light, right? So that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, how we, we think of our position in, in that political spectrum. Uh, now, that said, it doesn't mean that we don't take some of these so-called uh, woke or um, far left uh, concerns seriously. Uh, and, and I would say this, especially when it comes to uh, issues where it, is, it comes down to a matter of human rights, for instance, uh, or, or, or individual uh, flourishing. I think that the politically safe position, which is, well, well, let's wait till the population comes around to it. We have never been comfortable with that uh, when it comes to what we believe to be fundamental human values and rights, right? We, we don't say, oh, look, Indians are only 5% of the population. And so let's wait till the other 60 or 70% of the population feels comfortable uh, having uh, Tamil as our, as our fourth national language before we, we, we do this. No, we said they are a significant minority. They were part of our nation-building efforts and they deserve to be recognized as one right. of uh, the core uh, contributors to our nation. So we have never shied away from taking the uh, potentially unpopular but correct positions on things. And as the minority party, we certainly don't have um, any say in shifting uh, the direction of policy uh, decisively in any direction. But what we can say is we try our best to be the conscience of the nation uh, in things that we believe strongly about. So um, that has included, for instance, uh, pushing for anti-discrimination laws to be passed uh, that cut across all potential divides, right? We, we ask for no discrimination, not just on the basis of nationality or ethnicity, but even for gender and gender identity. Um, so we believe that there should be equality in terms of when you're trying to look for a job, that you should not be discriminated on any of these dimensions. Um, and I think that is the morally defensible, the ethically uh, right position to take. And I, I think that we're not being more woke by taking um, a morally correct position. So that, that, that I will say that um, I don't believe that we are moving far to the left in the vast majority of things. Uh, but in certain things, I do hope that we can be uh, in a position where we can take the ethically defensible position. All right. Okay. So thank you so much. That was really 
really a stimulating session. So final question in the spirit of conciliatory politics, right? So who is your favorite PAP MP other than SM Taman? Hmm. <laughs> um, so I am... Uh, obviously, the, the ones that sit close to me, I, I have a very amicable relationship with them. Uh, so Yipong Wing and uh, Don Wee, they sit right beside me. So uh, And then Fumi Har sits in front of me. So uh, we have reasonably amicable relationships there. Gan Tian Po, who is in Fer, the MP for Fernvale. So I send him mm. a lot of cases when they mistakenly uh, <laughs> out, okay. reach out to me. So, right. so those... Um, I actually really like Tan Siling, um, in, t- in how he carries himself, the way yeah, he Yeah, he's, he's so impressive in his answers as well. Yeah, yeah so um, the one area where I have uh, not been as comfortable in, and actually I think his discomfort also shows, is when he tries to kind of be a bit more on the attacking side. I don't think it suits his personality. Hmm. And... Um, I don't think it adds value to what he brings to the table. What he brings to the table is a wealth of um, experience, especially in the private sector. Uh, a very sharp mind, both, of course, in his trained profession, which is uh, in medicine, but also uh, in terms of his approach to thinking about public policy. Yeah. Um, so in all my conversations with... Um, with him, I've often really enjoyed them, and I've never felt, at least in the members' break room, I've never felt that uh, there was a partisan divide. We, we always focus on uh, policy issues when we talk about things, and of course, more recently, it's often been about COVID. I understand the challenges that they face when they are rolling out COVID-related policies, and um, and I think it's, it's valuable, to, even if I disagree, it's valuable to um, be able to understand and empathize the kind of challenges that they face because after all they are in government and uh, maybe a closing thought that will be useful is this look as the workers party we always propose uh, what we believe to be the best alternative policies but ultimately we want the nation to succeed if by proposing these policies we sharpen the policies of the ruling party such that we end up uh, in a better place than we were in the past, then I think we have succeeded. Right. Um, even if we remain as a minority party, um, I, as long as this nation, this boat that we all live in, uh, continues to drive toward the, the sunset, if you will, the metaphorical sunset, um, and we're all rowing in the same direction, even if some of us roll to the left, others <laughs> roll to the right. Half step uh, to the left. Half step to the left, <laughs> a half dip on the left. I think um, in general, we, that, that's what we want. We want the right. nation as a whole to succeed. Right. I think that's such a beautiful conclusion, right? A successful PAP means a successful Singapore, right? Well, a successful opposition as well, I think, means a successful Singapore. So on that note, thank you so much, Professor Jameis Lim. I know it's very late. You have an early and long day tomorrow. Uh, and it's the best views I've ever gotten. <laughs> the most vibrant chat uh, I've seen and a lot of trolls as well. But that's part of the course. I'm sure you're used to it. So thank well, you so thanks, much. Thanks, Wallet. Prof. Okay, wonderful. thank you so much. All right. 
Bye bye, everybody. Good night.